I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to Achtung Mool, broadcasting from the beautiful South Bermondsey. Accept no substitute. Hello, good afternoon and welcome, dear listeners. Welcome to a one-off edition of Akdung Millwall. My name is Nick Hart. You're listening to the number one Millwall podcast. You know you are. As you are well aware, dear listeners, we begin every show this season with our pundit.co.uk pundit games question. Uh, Number one Millwall podcast, number one football board game, quiz game. Um, Wonderful game. Do get on it. Christmas is coming. And it makes a wonderful uh, gift for the football head in your life. Now, each before each edition this season, as you know, we ask a, a football question. This one is uh, an England in the 90s question. Um, Premier League in the 90s. Uh, still, yeah, just, yeah, 91, 92. This relates to um, a striker, an Arsenal striker, mainly, and well-known for being at Arsenal. Um, played also for um, a variety of clubs, actually, before going to the Gunners. 1988 to 1995, an Arsenal striker. 228 appearances for the Gunners. 46 goals. So, you know, he was, he was amongst the goal scorers. Previously, with um, he was loaned out to Leicester and Leighton Orient. Don't remember that. But Nottingham Forest, vague recollection of him being at Forest. Uh, 1995 to 98, 80 games and 32 goals for Forest. Then on to Everton. Um, do remember him at Everton, actually. 137 games, 36 goals for the Toffees, then West Brom and Cardiff. Um, so this the, 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 the question, a proper handful of a striker started out at Arsenal before achieving cult hero status at Everton where he remains the club's highest ever Premier League goal scorer. I didn't know that. So, yeah, um, 36 goals for Everton, 1999 to uh, 2005. And previously, 1988-95 to with Arsenal, 228 games, 46 goals. With one spell at Forest, 80 games for them, 32 goals. So, decent, decent striker, cult hero at Goodison Park. Do you know this striker, dear listeners? We'll read out the answer at the end of today's... Um, well, it's a bit of a mixed bag of a show, actually. Um, I had in mind to do a whole City preview. Um, are you still basking in the afterglow of last night's, Wednesday night's fantastic win, Tuesday night's fantastic win, even, down there at Plymouth? I am. It's uh, certainly relieved 
a lot of um, a lot of tension around the, around the whole household. I don't know about your household, dear listeners. Um, good win in the end down there at Plymouth after a, a tough first half. I thought we we really took control with the wonderful goal by Zian Fleming, and then that late late classic. It's become a Mill classic goal now, isn't it? With the the uh, shoulder challenge, fair shoulder challenge by Zian Fleming to release the, uh, the the forgotten man George Savile who put the ball away with a plomb to make it 2-0 and create ecstasy amongst the 612 travelling Millwall fans. Just looking through the London news online, Millwall news, um, some good news. Millwall may be boosted by the return of Tom Bradshaw, the availability, I should say, of Tom Bradshaw for Saturday's visit of Hull City. Um, been out with a hamstring strain, suffered against West Brom. Uh, Gary Rowett says, Bradders is really making good progress and there's a chance he may be available for the weekend. It would be great to see him back. He does work like a Trojan up front and we have missed that uh, quality in recent games. We're certainly not ruling him out, says Gary Rowett. Um, Let's hope he doesn't rush him back. I did have a sense that Kevin Nisbet was slightly um, pushed back early. Um, He's not really been um, as electric as I thought we, we'd see at the, we'd seen at the start of the season. Maybe we're not giving him the service, um, but certainly that was a good good result down there at Plymouth on, on the Tuesday night. Uh, Wes Harding, man of the match, named as man of the match on the Millwall Club website today. I agree with that. Uh, everyone, the pundits on our show we did in the aftermath of the win, all agreed. Where's Harding? Do you agree, dear listeners? I can't really see any other option. We did have some mentions in dispatches for Ryan Leonard and, and Casper Denor and Duncan Watmore, actually, for his industry up front. But uh, certainly Wes Harding, um, speaking to London News, says we need to start replicating our away form at the den. Yes, we do. Yes, we do, Wes. Um... Yeah, uh, that's the question. That's the that's the sixty four thousand dollar question. Can Gary Rowett ha- uh, muster that kind of away form, which is pretty good, pretty solid? We defended solidly at uh, Plymouth. Can we reproduce um, that solidity matched with some form of attacking now? Because that's really where this season, particularly, it's all gone a bit um, bit awry. That said, that win down there at Plymouth has left us two points. Off of the playoff spots, only in the championship do you get these kind of madcap um, sentences. But there we are, 14th in the table after that 2-0 win. Ten games into the, into the season, we're approaching the quarter mark of the championship season. That'll come up um, probably just after the, the international break. Ten games at the moment, 14 points for the Lions. A collection of clubs in front of us, but uh, Leeds sit in sixth spot. On um, 16 points, so just two points separating us. A good win against Hull City, who are ninth on 16 points, um, would really set the season ablaze. Amazing. The football's capacity to turn around so quickly is incredible. Obviously, there's a big if we can muster a good a win. Uh, let's not talk about the performance at the moment. Let's, let's, uh, was what's the kids say? Shithouse. They shithouse a win versus Hull City first. Um, but a return of Tom Bradshaw is certainly um, welcome news ahead of the visit of the of the Tigers. Now then, um, the reason that um, this is a mixed bag for you today, dear listeners, is I had a... Is it a request? It's not really a request. It's a, it was a question posed to me by Matt Webb on Twitter. And I, 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 I'm a bit of a sucker for these kinds of 
um, challenges. Um, so Matt posted a picture of a looks like a, a sports history book. Looks like it's the Times, Matt. If I'm reading the font and the logo in the corner of the uh, page that you've sent me correctly, it looks like the Times Sporting History. So this one's from 1967. And um, it's got various um, headlines and stories of, uh, of of the time. So there's one here about the All Blacks cancelling a tour over the banned Maoris. This was a tour of South Africa, apartheid South Africa at that time. The All Blacks refusing to travel, I imagine, because one or two of their Maori players may have fallen foul of the um, the racial laws applying in South Africa at that point. So they've, they've, they've cancelled their Rugby Union Tour. This is uh, July to December 1967 that we're picking these stories from. Um, Tommy Simpson, who's a cyclist, Tour de France. Um, excess speed killed him in the Tour de France, it says here. This is uh, climbing a mountain, Mount Ventoux. Um, that's a, a classic name in the world of cycling. And there's a story of Bradford Northern in the Rugby League uh, folding 1964, resurrected. Um, continued their recovery by staging two matches on a Sunday in, in, in this period. But anyway, the reason that I'm talking to you about the period of July to December 1967 is a very small paragraph in the, uh, you know, the by the way section of the, it's laid out as though it's a newspaper, this particular image. I'll have to uh, put the post on on the, when I put the, the show out so you can have a look. But anyway, it mentions a second division match between Cardiff City and Millwall in November 1967, was abandoned after after 31 minutes when a Millwall fan burst into the Cardiff offices to demand a refund and punched the Cardiff manager of the time, Jimmy Schuller, on the jaw. Um, now, Matt asked if, if I had any knowledge of this incident, which I hadn't heard of. Um, one of the joys of doing these kinds of shows is you do learn something. You learn about incidents and storylines and, uh, you know, moments that uh, players that you haven't come across before. So, no, uh, Matt, I hadn't heard of that. I see um, he's copied in Neil, uh, my uh, partner in, in these kinds of shows, but um, he asked, can you shed some light on the on this game against Cardiff? Now, as I say, I hadn't heard of the story at all, but it's um, an abandoned match. Uh, the way it's worded here in the Times... Uh, abandoned after 31 minutes when when a Millwall fan burst into the Cardiff offices to demand a refund, which finished up him, with him punching the Cardiff manager, Jimmy Schooler, on the jaw. Now, there's a, I have found the story, Matt, and there's a couple of um, errors, I would say, in the reportage that I've found, or differences, let's put it that way, um, because the way that's worded in the Times sports book, it sounds as though the game was abandoned because of this incident with the fan breaking into Cardiff manager Jimmy Schooler's office. Um, however, I did find a report of from the uh, the People and the Daily Mirror, actually. So the People, Sunday People, is dated the 5th of November 1967, a very short couple of paragraphs, nothing much to it. Uh, fan punches Schooler. Cardiff manager Jimmy Schooler was punched in the face by a Millwall fan after the game at Ninian Park had been abandoned on 31 minutes. The supporter, a six-footer, six-foot-five, wearing a Millwall rosette, this is something from the past, dear listeners, rosette, forced his way into the passage leading to the dressing room, demanding his money back. 
He threw a punch before the Cardiff boss, regarded as a soccer tough guy when he played for Portsmouth and Newcastle, hustled him into his office. Uh, Millwall manager Benny Fenton and I had a few words with him, a few words, and then let him go, said Schooler. Fenton, Benny Fenton, whose supporters were in trouble for attacking a referee last month, that was the infamous Norman Burton Shaw incident, which we've touched on before, and I won't, won't go into that today, um, but this was only a month after the, the, the Burton Shaw incident at the Den, um, said to the to the people, he was the, he was the sort of hothead that we don't want at Millwall. So, um, so the game's been abandoned, and then the fan has uh, somehow forced his way into the passage, the, the, the dressing room passageway, and then uh, assaulted Jimmy Schooler. There's another report here, dated November the 6th. This is the Monday uh, report. Um, this is a thing from the past that younger listeners won't appreciate. We live in the age of instant information now, don't we? Back then, you looked out hoping for a short um, well, paragraph or two, if you got lucky, in the Sunday papers. Obviously, games are always played on the Saturday. And then, um, hopefully, you got a report on the Sunday. And then, usually, if you're really lucky, you got a follow-up report on the Monday. And lo and behold, there is a Monday paper report. This is from the Daily Mirror. November the 6th, 1967. Summer of love for that, but not at Millwall. No summer of love down in Bermondsey, down on Coldblow Lane, dear listeners. Um, all that hippie business, no thank you. Anyway, um, the, the, the headline of a uh, slightly longer story here, Punched Schooler Will Take No Action. But This is a story by Tom Lyons of the Daily Mirror. Cardiff City manager Jimmy Schooler, who was punched in the face by an angry Mill supporter on Saturday, will not take the matter any further, he says. Uh, Schooler flew out to Holland yesterday to watch NAC Breeder, Breeder uh, Cardiff's opponents in the second round of the European Cup Winners' Cup, playing Sparta Rotterdam. Uh, Cardiff were regular qualifiers for the European Cup Winners' Cup, a competition that's no longer with us, sadly. I used to like the Cup Winners' Cup. Um, because they always won, invariably, the Welsh Cup, and that was a qualifying tournament to play um, in the European Cup Winners' Cup. So they were regular, you took part in Europe. It was unusual back then. So here he's, he's gone out to size up their opponents, NAC Breda. Um, the, the story continues. The Schooler abandoned, it says, Schooler was attacked after Cardiff's game with Millwall had been abandoned in pouring rain in the 30th minute with the pitch waterlogged. A young man, no indication as to his height, but a young man wearing a mill scarf and rosette pushed his way past the goalkeeper, the gatekeeper, rather, at Ninian Park and demanded his money back. When Schooler tried to reason with him, the man lashed out and hit the Cardiff chief under his left eye, so not his jaw. Um, with commendable restraint, manager Schooler hustled his assailant into his office and warned him to behave or he would hand him over to the police. After a severe dressing down from Schooler and Mill manager Benny Fenton, the man was escorted out of the ground. I'd say he's got away quite lightly there, dear listeners. And I, I also want to um, take my hat off to Jimmy Schooler, though, who says he's going to take no further action. The bloke's just been slung out. Um, and I think that's, 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 that's old-school behaviour. Don't you agree? You know, um, the punch has been thrown... And um, <laughs> nowadays, you probably have a legal action or something out of it. As back then, um, he took it on the on the on, on the eye, not on the chin, um, as as the Times original story 
had it and handled it with restraint, as, as the Daily Mirror says. So a number of things to say there. The game was abandoned not because of this incident, which was the impression that I got when I first saw Matt's boys' um, page. It was waterlogged pitch, downpour of rain, which um, is, you know, unfortunate, but I don't think anyone would have, you know, it's not anyone's fault. Um, the pitch waterlogged. Referees called it off, and this chap wearing a scarf and rosette. This is something you don't see. You don't see scarves too often, um, let alone a rosette. That's something that's really um, passed out of the game, um, which would have made an incongruous figure, wouldn't it? Six foot tall, according to the other report, wearing a scarf and a rosette. There's something slightly um, fey about <laughs> rosette. I, 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 I'm saying this to you because that was one of the first souvenirs that I ever bought when I started going with the wall. Um, the club shop used to be on Coldblow Lane. It was barely... Um, we complain about the club shop now, listeners, but blimey, back then it was a wooden hut shed, effectively, that you could never get into because it was always crammed with people selling the tattiest stuff. Um, and I, in my youth, I was about 12 when I started going. Uh, 11 when I started going. We're talking about, I was about 12 when I bought this rosette because I felt like I wanted to identify now with this club that I discovered largely. I didn't really know much about Millwall until I started going in 72. And so, you know, as you do when you're a kid, you want to identify and connect with your club. So I bought myself a rosette and from the club shop. It was all white because we played in all white in those days. And it had the tackiest um, FA Cup in, in kind of silver foil um, in the middle of this white arrangement of Suppose it's meant to be ribbon, um, probably just some kind of polyester stuff produced in a factory somewhere to to a general order, and then set, uh, stapled to the rosette in the middle is a, was a, a printed um, Millwall, um, you know, just like block capitals uh, on a bit of cardboard stapled in. Um, I was proud of it until I noticed that not many others wore rosettes to the game. Um, so I took it home and I kept it for many years. Don't know what happened to it. Got lost in the million and one tumults of life ever since. But uh, yeah, so that was my first ever purchase as a as as a fan. And your man here um, busted into Jimmy Schooler's office wearing a scarf and a rosette. This this is the detail that really adds colour to this particular story. I do admire Jimmy Schooler for just um, giving the bloke a piece of his mind in his office. With Benny Fenton, also another, you know, old school, old school figure. And um, then he was slung out, really, you know. Um, there used to be rules on getting your money back. I, I have an idea that it used to be a condition of entry that you didn't get your money back once play had started or something of that order. I can't remember how they used to word it now. Um, obviously, in sports like cricket and... Uh, I was watching the Speedway the other night. You have to have a certain number of races to constitute a match. I know that you have to have a certain number of uh, overs in cricket for it to, be, you know, both sides have, have had a bat and um, then it's deemed a game, you know, subject to the, the various Duckworth-Lewis, uh, you know, shenanigans that you can get. Um, watching the Speedway, I had to have 10 races in the pouring rain the other night for it to constitute a game. And then I presume you don't get your money back if... Uh, if it gets called off. I can't remember what football's rules are on it. Um, anyway, that's a different subject. Um, so there we are. There is the story, Matt. Um, it is a story. Um, fan punches Schooler 
Jimmy Schooler, the Cardiff manager, in the aftermath of an abandoned game. I suppose he was, well, browned off with having gone down to Cardiff only to see it pour down with rain and then the game um, gets called off. It would be rearranged about a month later, a midweek game, which again would be a bit of a bit of a bastard, wouldn't it? Because you're not going to get down to a midweek game with work uh, like you could do for a Saturday game. Um, but I do have a report from the uh, rearranged fixture which took place in uh, the 5th of December 1967. Um, this would be a team comprising of Brian King in goal, John Gilchrist, Dennis Burnett, Brian Jacks, Barry Kitchener, Ken Jones, Derek Posse, Keith Weller, Brian Conlon, uh, Eamon Dunphy and Billy Nil. Conlon will be replaced by a player that I've picked out for you. So I, I, I hadn't come across him before. You know, uh, I've heard the name of Brian Conlon and uh, I've got I picked him out too, but didn't know much about Conlon. This is all predates me starting to go to Millwall. But I certainly hadn't heard of Ron Howell who came in for... Condon. So I do have a match report for the rearranged fixture for you, dear listeners. We like to give you value for money. I mean, you you know, uh, subscription fees are very, very high on this channel. So, you know, we do like to deliver as much as we possibly can for you. Um, so the original game uh, in, in uh, November was abandoned, rearranged for the 5th of December. Um, Bustling Brown saves Cardiff, says Tom Lyons, reporter with the, the Daily Mirror, Cardiff 2, Millwall 2, it finishes. Inside right, Bobby Brown, former England amateur international. Amateur international, you don't get that definition anymore, do you? Um, Saved Cardiff with only two minutes to go. This after Keith Weller had put Millwall in front of a second goal, five minutes from full time. Brown burst through uh, with two minutes to go to snatch an equaliser. Cardiff led from the 39th minute when John Toshak... John Toshak will go on to fame with uh, Liverpool later on in his in his career and then manage in uh, Swansea, I think, and, and Spain. Did he not go to, was it Bilbao that he went to, Toshak? Anyway, um, Toshak side-footed home across from centre-forward Peter King to put him 1-0 up. Uh, Mill centre-forward Brian Conlon, who have picked out, hurt his knee in a collision with the Cardiff goalkeeper Bob Wilson. Bob Wilson go on to fame and fortune with Arsenal, of course, and then um, would present match of the day, I think, in in in, in due course in the in the 80s. Um, collision took place in the 30th minute and uh, Conlon had to go off for treatment. He returned six minutes later limping. This was the era of just one substitute. Uh, Conlon stayed on to see Mill equalise a minute after the interval through Weller, but in the 52nd minute he went off and Ron Howell came in. Conlon had barely reached the dressing room when Mill suffered another injury, this time to goalkeeper Brian King, who was hurt in stopping a drive from John Toshak. The game was held up several minutes whilst he received treatment. Uh, Cardiff brought off left winger Ron Bird after 77 minutes and replaced him with Gary Bell. But in the 85th minute, Keith Weller put Mill ahead by blasting home a pass from Eamon Dunphy. And then came Brown's late dramatic equaliser. It finished... Cardiff 2, Millwall 2. Um, I'm sure, I remember when I spoke to Brian King, I did an interview with him during the uh, the lockdown, and I'm sure he mentioned the injury sustained at Cardiff. It certainly put him out of contention for some while afterwards. This was the uh, the 1967-68 season, and 
Uh, King had just not long forced his way into the team, in, in truth. Um, Laurie Leslie, Scottish, um, Scottish international goalkeeper, I think, Laurie Leslie, in his time, um, took over in the games um, we began the season. King then came in as the as the new hot goalkeeping prospect, having signed from Chelmsford. Um, and then Leslie was forced back into the into the side for a couple of months up until March of '68, uh, when Brian King was able to return. Um, 67, 68, Mill would finish in seventh position in Division Two, as it was then. Uh, we would be 45 points, top two promoted back in those far off days of Ipswich and QPR promoted, first and second position. So we were some way off of promotion, but uh, relegated from the division that season, Plymouth and and Rotherham. Top scorer for Millwall, 67-68, was Keith Weller, 14 goals, followed by Derek Posse on 12 goals and Brian Conlon, I just mentioned, on, on 10 goals. So... Um, Conlon's not a, a a name that often gets mentioned, so I thought it might be nice to pick out Brian Conlon and Roger uh, Ron Howell. Uh, Ron Howell. Ron, Ronald Roger Howell. Uh, begin with Ron Ron Howell. He was a midfielder, played just 15 games for us between 1966 and uh, 1970, scoring just one goal in that time. He was born in Tottenham in 1949, his career took in various clubs, really. Uh, Millwall, 1967 uh, to, to 70, as we've said. Cambridge United, Kettering, Swindon, Brighton, 1973, Tooting and Mitcham, Stone, Dagenham, various uh, Mount Grace. Um, manager of Leighton Pennant, there's a name from the past, long league name. And then assistant manager at Finchley in 1986. Um, he made his debut in the tw- 24th of March 1967 in a 2-0 win over Berry. Uh, the, the, the biog, uh, this is from Neil's book, the uh, A to Z, uh, who's who of Mill players. Ronnie, Ronnie Howe, was one of a clutch of Mill players that Mill poached from the Tottenham area of North London in the mid-60s. An excellent youth player and reserve team performer, Ron found it hard to maintain consistency when he reached the first team. Skillful and articulate, he was aided by some slick passing. He led the lines, um, left the lines to move to Cambridge in 1970 for their inaugural football league campaign. They'd been voted in. I do remember them being voted in. It was quite something for clubs to come into the league back then. Um, so he left for Cambridge in 1970. Um, his league career was ended after a clash of personalities with Brian Man- Brighton manager Brian Clough. Ronnie still lives in his native North, Lon- North London and worked as a rank messenger in the city of London. Uh, Ron Howe, um, still going, still going. Good luck to him. Um, the other name I wanted to pick out was was Brian Conlon, a centre-forward. Um, predates my time, so I'm going very much from, you know, no, I have no knowledge of Brian Conlon, let me put it that way too. He was a centre-forward with the Lions from 1967 to 69, played 45 games, scoring 13 times for us. Born in um, Shildon in in the uh, northeast in 1943, Sandy passed away in Shildon in 2000. Um, his career took in various northeastern sides: uh, Durham County, uh, trial at Sheffield Wednesday, Newcastle, South Shields, Darlington, before coming to Millwall for fifteen thousand in November 1967. He would leave us in the December of 68. Go to Norwich, um, Blackburn Crew, and uh, Cambridge as as uh, as per um, Ronnie Howes. Um, the the biography describes 
Brian as strong and forceful a target man. Brian Condon came to Mill's attention when he scored for Darlington when they knocked the Lions out of the League Cup in 1967 October. The wheels were set in motion virtually straight after the game and within three weeks, Brian had signed on the dotted line. He made a dream start in a middle shirt, scoring against Crystal Palace. That was his debut versus Crystal Palace, a two-all draw, November 67. But after a little over a year, he was transferred to Norwich. Brian returned to live in Shildon in County Durham, uh, working as a, a milkman and coached his local worksite. He sadly died after a long illness in 2000, aged 57. So... Um, Rest in peace, Brian Conlon. Um, so there we are. That's That was the rearranged fixture from the abandoned match um, in the aftermath of which um, we have this incident with Jimmy Schooler, uh, Cardiff manager. Now, it's unusual for me in on these shows, listen, I wanted to focus on Jimmy Schooler because I was quite impressed by the reportage of the way he handled that, in, that incident. You can picture it being a very different situation nowadays and I wanted to look at um, I didn't know the name Jimmy Schooler so um, I found that his obituary it's um, online it's in the independent and he died in 1998 and I was really struck reading it it is no he has no mill connection other than this particular um, story of you know the disgruntled fan hot-headed as Benny Fenton described him um, and then throwing a punch, but the schooler being man enough to deal with it in a you know very a very correct way, if you if you like. Um, and when you hear his obituary, you kind of get a sense as to why he would have handled it. So, um, also a bit of a picture as to how the game has faded far from a working class life that's now very much in the in the distance. I suppose it's one of these stories where. Um, you feel, I suppose I'm, I've lived long enough now to still feel connected to it. You know, my, my grandparents would be of this generation and there was a certain experience, life experience, that just made it a very different world. Anyway, I'm waffling. Um, so this is this is Jimmy Schooler's obituary. Uh, Jimmy Schooler was a, a footballing volcano and certainly not of the dormant variety. A fearsome, combative Scot from a flinty mining upbringing. He tackled like a runaway coal wagon and was prone to explosive eruptions of fury, yet he possessed precise passing skills which could change the course of a game. It was said of him that he played sometimes as if he hated everyone on the field. I like that line. Demolishing opponents, balling out teammates and confronting referees. But it wasn't true. Jimmy was a decent man with a tremendous sense of humour and there was no hate in him. It was just that he was obsessed with the game and more particularly the winning of it. There are those who reckon that barring his abrasive temperament, the small but enormously muscular right half would have won many more honours. But a counter-argument is that without that irrepressible fire, he would have been but a pale shadow of Schooler the Scourge. As he was, he didn't do badly. He picked up two league championship medals with, with Portsmouth, leading Newcastle United to FA Cup glory and earning nine international caps for his country. Most importantly, he was an utterly honest, truly formidable as a foe, but unshakable as a friend. It had always seemed likely that Schooler would follow his father, Alec, who played for Allower Athletic, Stenhouse Muir and Leith Athletic, before the Second World War into the professional game. However, conflict diverted his energies, and it was during the conflict that uh, he saw service as a submarine engineer on HMS Dolphin at Gosport in Hampshire. 
there he was spotted by uh, in Royal Naval Football by Portsmouth, who were then a major soccer power. He signed in 1945 and lost little time in winning the regular berth in the Fratton Park side, forming a, a vividly contrasting wing-half partnership with the placid, gentlemanly Englishman Jimmy Dickinson. Together, the two men provided a solid midfield platform on which was built Pompey's successive title triumphs of 1949-1950, league champions. An immense achievement in the face of stern opposition from the likes of Sir Matt Busby, or Matt Busby back then, uh, Manchester, uh, Manchester United, and Stan Cullis' Wolves. However, despite his inspirational play, Schooler frequently fell foul of the authorities, and his absence through suspension from the last two games of 1949-50, to following a sending off, which was an uncommon event in that era, provoked controversy and personal criticism. Come 1952-53, with the side struggling, Schooler was dropped briefly and asked to leave, though he was restored almost at once when he did this. But he was granted his wish in the summer, and while the ostensible reason for his uh, £22,000 move to Newcastle was that transfer request, the feeling persisted that his lurid image did not suit Pompey's management. The South Coast loss proved the North Easterners' gain as Schooler was installed as Magpie Skipper, driving his colleagues relentlessly and setting a rousing personal example. Though league form was disappointing for a club with such lofty aspirations, there was compensation in the FA Cup, defi- def- uh, FA Cup final defeat of Manchester City in 1955. That day at Wembley saw Schooler at his most irresistible, neutralising the much-vaunted threat of the deep-lying centre-forward Don Revy through his ruthless marking and providing the springboard for victory with a stream of raking crossfield passes to his left-winger Bobby Mitchell. Man of the Match awards were not in vogue at the time, but had there been one, it must have gone to the Geordies' motivator supreme. City fans had barracked him, but he had claimed such treatment merely spurred him on to greater efforts. As for the Newcastle followers, they had bored him as a dirty so-and-so during his Portsmouth days, but now they described him as robust but fair, which might have been a tad euphemistic, but nevertheless was pretty much the truth. Thereafter, Schooler remained a cornerstone of United's team for the rest of the decade, not departing until he was 36 in 1961, when he joined 4th Division Bradford Park Avenue as a player manager, for a nominal sum. After after one season of apparent consolidation, they returned to the basement, Division 4, in 1963. He continued to play listeners into his 40th year, laying aside his boots in February 1964, uh, three months before his Yorkshire sojourn terminated with a sack. Um, in June, he was appointed boss of 2nd Division Cardiff City, which is, brings us to our incident with your man bursting into his, into his office. Um... Frequent winners of, as we've said, they were frequent winners of the Welsh Cup, so they took part in European football. And the highlight being 1967-68, where they reached the semi-finals of the European Cup Winners' Cup, losing on aggregate to Hamburg, 4-3. They fell away dramatically over subsequent terms, culminating Jimmy Schooler's dismissal in 1973. After that, he scouted for Villa Wolves and then managed Newport County for a year, then scouting for Swansea and Newcastle. Outside of the game, he worked as a representative for a chemical firm and ran a guest house in Cardiff before retiring to live near the city. In his final years, Jimmy Schooler was severely incapacitated by illness, a poignant end to a vibrantly active life. He lived from 1925 um, and passed away in 1998, leaving three daughters and a wife. Um, now, it's very unusual for us to cover a non-Millwall 
uh, figure, but I, I make no apologies for that. Jimmy Schooler sounds like one of the old school, proper footballing characters, um, carved out of rock. And his name cropped up in the course of this particular edition. I was intrigued to find out more about it about him, and I'm glad that I did. That was his obituary in full. There we are. R.I.P. Jimmy Schooler. Huge thank you to um, Matt for sending me this, Matt Webb, for sending me this particular story. Um, I hadn't come across the incident with a fan bursting into Jimmy Schooler's uh, office before. And I thought we deserved a, a show in its own right, so here we are. And the way that Schooler managed that situation, having just read his obituary, having um, heard about him as a man, fits in. And I think that's quite a nice, a nice tribute. So um, there we are. Huge thank you to to Matt Webb for that that storyline. Um, now that's the end of the show, impromptu show. I've got to, I've got to um, answer the question. When the question that we started today's edition with was pundit.co.uk question number one, football quiz game, dear listeners. Um, this was a proper handful of a striker starting at Arsenal before achieving cult hero status at Everton through the uh, 1990s, early 2000s. He remains Everton's highest ever Premier League goal scorer, so 228 appearances for Arsenal, 80 for Nottingham Forest, and um, 137 appearances for Everton, 36 goals. It was Kevin Campbell, great striker, Kevin Campbell. I hope you've enjoyed this little impromptu edition of Achtung Milde, listeners. Thank you for tuning in. We'll be back after the Hull City game on Saturday. Let's keep our fingers crossed for a win. And um, big shout-out to Neil Harris, who apparently has just been sacked by Gillingham. There's a story. Let's see how that develops. <laughs> Arrivederci, Millwall. Thank you for listening, dear listeners. Thank you, Matt, as well. Um, speak to you all soon. Bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.